electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And tonight on Fast, a tech fake-out, one top technician casting doubt on the recent tech turnaround, why he sees more trouble ahead in the charts. Check out the move in KB Home, shares higher after earnings drop. We're going to bring you all the big headlines from their quarter. And then an options alert on one of this year's best-performing stocks. See if you can guess who this is. Here's some hints. It's a name you know. It's a bank. It's had a lot of problems, but its stock price this year... Ain't one of them. All right, everybody, welcome to Fast Money. As you can tell, I'm not Melissa. I am Brian. Melissa has the night off. And tonight's trader lineup, nobody gets the night off. Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Stephen P. Grasso. Welcome, everybody. Good to be here. All right, on a day that we found out that inflation is running hotter than any time since E.T. was the hottest ticket around 1982, let's talk about rising prices and begin here with oil and gas. Because crude oil once again popping its head above 83 bucks a barrel. It is now up nearly 10% this year. And that has given fuel to the oil and gas stocks. Check out these numbers. The XLE ETF up 14% since last Monday. The OIH even better, up 19%. Folks, that's this year. Many individual names up 15, 18, more than 20%, all just since January 3rd. In fact, Energy stocks account for seven of the top eight names so far in the S&P 500 this year. And there is a lot to talk about, so let's get right into it. And we have to start here. Guy Adami. Because I don't host this show very much, but I do know this enough. I'm here to know that you've been talking about Schlumber's A for a while. It has been your final trade for a long time. So a big shout out to you, Mr. Adami. That SLB trade, red hot this year. Yeah, and listen, Tim has been on this as well, without question. I mean, I think we've both been back and forth. Not We've been steadfast, but we sort of take turns on the OIH. But let's talk about the OIH real quick, Brian. And by the way, I loved Harrison Ford in E.T. I thought he killed it in that movie, one of his best roles. But the OIH <laughs> has been vacillating between sort of 175 and 225 literally since the spring of last year. So now you're at a level where, in my opinion, the OIH needs to prove itself and it close above 225. I think it will. You look at both Halliburton and Schlumberger, both now at multi-year highs, both on the verge of breaking out. Morgan Stanley recently upgraded Halliburton. I think you have Halliburton reports on the 24th. I think Schlumberger on the 21st. I don't necessarily think this is an earnings story as much as a valuation story. So I think you got to stay with these trades here. Yeah, Tim, we'll go to you on that before we go to Karen, because I know that was part of her zombie trade. In fact, by the way, all four of you have been on energy and on oil and gas before it was sexy and cool. So all four of you, by the way, deserve a shout out. Tim, follow up on that as well. The OIH is primarily Schumberzay and Halliburton and a bunch of others. What's your take on the space generally? Well, one of the reasons why I think our, our audience 
enjoys this show is one of the reasons why they probably get frustrated because I think we're pretty consistent and we show up and sometimes it sounds like a broken record. And I'll do this again on energy. The reason energy is is now a investment, not just a trade, is that energy companies are run very differently and, and looked no closer than the oil services companies where CapEx and spending is way down. And, and by the way, these are innovative companies. This is technology disruption. Uh, but the story is that these are companies that will probably, and EMP overall will have uh, a 7% yield this year between buybacks and divs and and possibly uh other spin-offs and whatnot so getting back to a schlumberger uh you know they're gonna have a, a floor six billion in ebitda more likely uh the street somewhere around seven and a half this is a free cash flow machine they are paying paying down debt so on valuation this is a stock you know somewhere um at these levels and again you're just touching those levels it was it ran into pressure in the earlier part of the of last year and, and now really looks poised to break out so um I, I think you have a valuation story you have companies that are run differently for equity investors and that's the reason why this is an investment not a trade yeah, and let's go now, Karen, to you, because I love that segment you guys did, but I think it was last week where you had your acronyms of the year, fantastic stuff. And Karen, yours reminded me of the 90s rock band, the Cranberries, with zombie spelled a bit different. And the O in zombie is the O-I-H. But to Guy's point, it's had a pretty nice bounce off its lows of a couple weeks ago. Are you trimming it all? Or are you going to ride this thing higher? I'm going to ride it higher. But let me just say, those two, Tim and Guy, were on it way, way, way. I'm a Johnny-come-lately bandwagoner relative to their interest in energy near the bottom. So kudos to them. So for me, though, I look at the OIH and I look at the underlying commodity and I see that, of course, they, they correlate. But the divergence between the two has been really big. The OIH has not participated anywhere near to what the commodity run has been. So right. I don't think the commodity run needs to continue to have the OIH work. I think oil could just be flat to slightly down, and I think it still works. So I'm, I'm not trimming at all. I added some yesterday morning or the day before. I can't. They're all blending together. Not a big add, but uh, just added a little bit more. And so I'm hanging out. I think, I think there's room to run. Yeah, you know, Steve, listen, uh, to Karen's point, when oil was at this level, the OIH, I think, was at like 400. So even though it's come off its low, to Karen's point, the divergence between the commodity and the ETFs is still huge. Probably some of that has to do with ESG. I want to get to you with more on that in a second. But you were an energy trader to start your career years and years and years ago. And there's some names that you have found that you like that are not the ones we talk about all the time. Talk to us about a California resources or a Denbury resources maybe starting to get a little ESG love due to carbon capture. Yeah, so so I think that's an important part. And you know, Guy had spoken about this a couple of years back when we were on the desk and in person. When you look at energy companies, there's a host of funds that cannot own these stocks because they don't fit into that bucket. They don't check the box. But now when you get a CRC or, or a Denbury, these are companies that are doing that. They're pumping this carbon, they're capturing it, they're sequestering it, and they're checking that box now. So if you were a fund manager and couldn't invest in ExxonMobil, now you can. If you're a fund manager and you're looking for outsized gains, you could look at a CRC. By the way, a CRC is up in a, on a 12-month on a basis 75%. 
Denbury up 180%. So CRC specifically, their carbon sequester business is not in the valuation of the company yet. This company could be up another 70% and not even move the needle. A Denbury is definitely, it's in more in the valuation. And Steve, I want to come back to you before I go back to guys. So, Steve, let's follow up on that because I think you made an incredibly important point. We talk a lot about ESG. It was very easy for ESG investors to dump all fossil fuel companies because they were losing money anyway. So it's like, we're ESG, we're done with them. Now these companies are starting to make money, not only make money as a company, but the stocks are making money. I have spoken personally with investors, many of whom like to stay off the record, who have said to me, I want or my clients want to own oil and gas again. I just need another nudge to say that, okay, these are semi-ESG and we can come back in. Grasso, do you think that, that the carbon capture and maybe even some board changes will be enough to get those ESG fencers off the fence and back into this group? Yeah, because you're not talking about the dedicated players. There's dedicated energy funds that are buying these and selling them on a regular basis for years. You're talking about the people that are on the fringe, people that are multi-sector, multi-strategy. They need a reason why they can say that they're capable or able to their shareholders to invest in these. And the shareholders are agnostic. What they care about yep. are profits. And as long as these companies are checking that box, they're capable of investing in them, therefore investing in that fund. Yeah, Guy, I don't know if you got my point. I'm sure you did, which is basically if you're a, if you're a fund manager and your clients are like, uh, why aren't you owning these companies? And you say, well, we're all ESG. Your clients may say, well, find a way to own these because they're making money or I may take my money elsewhere. No question about it. And to, I think to Steve and to Tim's earlier point, these companies are now run better. I think they're trying to get in line with what ESG investors are looking for. And watch what I do here, Brian. And the longer oil lingers north of $80, uh, I think the more these oh. stocks will start to catch up. I think it's just a matter of time. And by the way, the Owen Cairns trade today, at least, should be for the late, great Dolores O'Reardon. Fair enough. And, and that, that musical pun, Tim, we dare say was the stuff of dreams. But what is your take? Let us go on this note. Oil and gas. What's investable? <laughs> it's awful when someone steals your cranberry song ahead of you. Um, you know, I, I think you've got a case here where if you look across uh, the EMP space, we've talked about the EOGs and some of the best of breeds. Certainly, you know, Chevron led the way with with running a more efficient approach to capex and spending. I, I think you know, broadening out a little bit, even into uh, dare I say, a Tenaris. So the the seamless tubes, oil and gas, uh, and some of the infrastructure around it. Again, you're starting to see these companies rally. You're starting to see companies that actually have very interesting balance sheets and the ability also to give cash back to investors. So again, ticker TS is a, is a, a major oil and gas play. Um, then you get into, you know, uh, National Oil, uh, well, Varco, so Nove and, and Champion X and even Baker Hughes. I mean, these are companies that people have been left for dead. By the way, don't forget, GE still owns 25% of Baker Hughes. And good thing they didn't sell all of it at the bottom. Yeah, we spoke with Lorenzo Simonelli, CEO of Baker Hughes, a couple of months ago in Houston. Very, very bullish CEO for, for Baker Hughes. Certainly, all right. Good discussion there. All right. 
Let's expand it and bring in a guest. And your next guest says this is a buy the commodity, but maybe sell the company type of environment. Kevin Book is the managing director at Clearview Energy Partners, and he joins us now. Kevin, thanks for joining us. You heard the conversation. The last time oil was at these levels, most of these oil stocks were 50, 75 percent higher than they are now. They, they still can't get a lot of love overall. Would you prefer to simply own oil futures? Yeah, if you look at it, there's a couple of things that are keeping the, the, the investment back. You know, part of it is that there's regulatory overhang. Uh, and uh, if you think about where this could go, uh, there's still a, a methane pinch coming for the shale patch. Uh, there are a lot of questions about how that's going to play out in terms of non-maintenance CapEx or maybe buying allowances, carbon coverage for a regulated market. And another one, we're talking 7% CPI print today, Brian. Everyone's talking about where were you in 1982? Well, remember that in 1980s, we're still in an environment where the inflationary pressure from the oil patch led to windfall taxes. So watch out. It's not just rate hikes, but the tax man who shows up when you see inflation in commodities. Yeah, well, you also see the regulators, to your first point, Kevin. I mean, we already know that the FTC and some members of Congress have sent some of these CEOs letters talking about collusion, why are gas prices so high, et cetera. There is, let's not forget, a regulatory overhang, to your point. But just how big do you think that overhang might be? So, look, if we look at rig counts relative to WTI's run uh, from trough to peak, this is we're seeing rigs moving about one third as fast into the oil patch as we saw during the last two run-ups. So with drilled, uncompleted well inventories falling, $80 barrel prices, you're going to see drilling. But would you expect to see as much? Probably not with these unsorted issues. There's other things, too. When you talk about access to capital, you know, one of the, the, the pressure points, the political environment here in Washington, Biden administration, maybe can't get build back better, but looking to bring in pressure on cost of capital for companies. But for regulation on the financial side, uh, and that means that some of what you were talking about, the ESG side, Wow, you found an ESG door back into oil. Well, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler's looking at, at how funds are defining what they do uh, after we see a disclosure rule for, for climate disclosures from oil and gas and all companies. Uh, also could see some, some either guidance or a rule looking yeah. at how funds are named. Yeah, but also, Kevin, and it's a little bit wonky, but I think it's important. We talk about, well, why aren't companies producing more oil? Well, first off, there's a lot of reasons. Not all of it is political. To Guy's initial point, these companies want to get smarter. They want to protect their assets. They want to make investors money. But that said, way deep under the scenes, and you know D.C. as well as anybody, there is a movement to basically prevent Wall Street firms and banks from lending money to have new fossil fuel projects, effectively starve them of capital. So if many of them wanted to do it, but had to borrow money, they can't. So there is sort of an unnatural DC angle to why oil prices could go to 100, could go to a buck 25, like JP Morgan says. It takes money going into the ground to get oil and gas out. Uh, and to be sure, we're not just talking about a return of capital moment for investors. That has happened, that is happening for sure. Uh, capital discipline. Well, yeah, cost of capital concerns are for real. And the, the political strategy here, the, the, the climate activist strategy, has long been to drive up that cost of capital for fossil fuels. And if, if at all possible, with the regulatory picture, drive it down for green energy. Kevin Book, Clearview Energy Partners. Kevin, always appreciate your clear view. 
Kevin, thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having Uh, me. Steve Grasso, go back to you. Like I said, you cut your teeth. Thank you. You cut your teeth, Grasso, in the energy pits years ago. Uh, How much would you weight that regulatory or D.C. or bank risk that we just talked about, if at all? So the the bank risk has been going on for years pre-pandemic. They they didn't want to fund a lot of these uh, endeavors by the oil and gas community. But the problem is, you, the, I guess the tailwind and the headwind is both political. We're going into the midterm elections. So I don't think that the Biden administration wants to oversee uh, maybe $100, $150 barrel of oil, right? So they're kind of forced here because they want to push alternatives, but you also can't have someone driving a pickup truck or an SUV spending $200 at the pump to fill up the gas. So they're kind of pushed into having a little bit of restraint here. I would say you have to wait, but I think the deeper you get into the middle of the year, the less bullish I am on the energy complex, if that makes sense. It does make sense. But right now to start the year, it has been the place to be that and some big banks, which, by the way, that's another segment. All right. Right now, though. We've got a news alert for you on AMC. Bertha Coombs is here. Bertha, what's going on with the movie theater chain? Well, Brian, a lot of uh, more stock sales coming from Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, selling more than 312,000 shares yesterday, according to an SEC filing. Now, that sale was part of a planned sale. And in fact, he clarified that in a tweet just a few minutes ago, saying that he announced back in August that he would be selling AMC stock when he turned 67 toward year end and under a chase 10b51 plan he actually had no control about when those sales would occur he said it would happen over three months he says those sales are now finished however and he says he still owns and plans to vest more than 2.3 million shares and he emphasized that in all caps and ending with the fact that he's all in for those who might think that he is trying to sell at the top here. Mm. Bertha Coombs, Bertha, thank you very much. So, Guy, yes, so the headline is more sales, but it was an automatic sale. Your reaction to the AMC News, Guy? Well, again, you know, everybody else is doing it, so why can't I type of thing? Listen, what what do I think about the news? Bertha just said Mm -hmm. it. It was planned. Nothing he can do about it. I totally get it, but... With all that said, I mean, the optics around this specifically, you know, given what's transpired, the hodlers, all that stuff, you know, hold the line type of stuff, it just doesn't look good. I mean, it just doesn't look good. So was there anything you could do about it? Apparently not. But you know what? As they used to say, where there's a will, there's a way. And who knew that this show would ultimately be about the the cranberries? Guy, thank you very much. All right, coming up. Big technology trying to make a big-time comeback after a lousy start to the year. But should you trust any move higher? Your next guest says probably not. We're going to find out why. But first, KB Homestock, one to watch. The home buying boom continues. That company out with their earnings and their conference call is underway. We're going to bring you more after-hours action on the KBH trade. Fast money back in two. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. 
with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We have got an earnings alert on homebuilder KB Home. Shares of the homebuilder are jumping after releasing their numbers. Let's find out how strong they were. Diana Olick has got the details on that. Diana. Hey, Brian. Yeah, shares are up about 5% thanks to a beat on EPS and strong sales. Still a slight miss, though, on revenue. The Los Angeles-based builder reported Q4 deliveries up 28% and slightly improved gross profit margin thanks to a favorable pricing environment amid high demand. But higher construction costs, notably particularly elevated lumber costs, took away from some of that. The builder's ending backlog value was up 67% to the highest since 2005. Builders have seen increased backlog due to severe construction delays. Now, CEO Jeff Metzger said in the release, we significantly expanded our production capabilities as we scale our business to meet the healthy demand that's driving the housing market and align our starts to net orders. But he noted operating conditions were, quote, extremely challenging with labor shortages and supply chain disruptions. Where have we heard that before? Now, home prices continue to be the headline through Q4. Average price was up 9 percent to 451,000. Guidance for 2022 has that price in a range between 480 and 490,000. And this, even as mortgage rates are now rising, there was, of course, no mention of that in the release. Brian. Hey, quickly, before I let you go, Diana. Yeah, we're looking at, a, I don't know, a 30 year fixed, what, between three and three point three, depending on the price and your and your Ooh, credit no, no. score. What's the higher. lag? Higher. A little higher. What's the lag yeah, between, so- more, between yields and rates? Well, between yields and rates, uh, rates will will shift every day. They, you know, it, it's not like a, a stock price that changes dr- throughout the day. But lenders will reset their price usually late morning every day, and they loosely follow the yield on the ten-year Treasury. But the bigger deal here is really the Fed pulling out of its purchases of mortgage-backed bonds and offloading those mortgage-backed bonds. That's what's really hitting the mortgage market right now. And you have rates up 50, 60, almost 70 basis points higher than a year ago. And that really Mm. cuts into affordability, especially when you're talking about new construction, which comes at a price premium, of course. Yeah, maybe the double whammy. Diana Olick, thank you very much. All right, Karen, so the numbers were not reflected in KB Home. They had a strong quarter, but that was such a quarter. And by the way, a year ago, Diana makes great points. Rates are on the rise. At the same time, the Fed is starting to dump mortgages. You just wonder if the the home builder stock dream is over. Yeah, I, that's a very good question. That's sort of the trillion dollar question, because we haven't seen that reflected at all in their quarter. Right. That's all been pretty much. Well, maybe the end of December. So we really don't know. I'm interested to hear what they have to say on the call in the beat. A lot of it was because prices were high. So they were able to uh, withstand higher costs 
for their input, labor, whatever it was, and pass it on to the customer. And now with that mortgage increase, I don't know if that's going to be possible. Um, but they're not expensive, and I still think that underbuilt situation exists. Um, if I think that sometimes when you have a rate increase, a rush of buyers come in to capture it before it really moves a lot. We'll see. I don't know. This is sort of the slow season. But I like um, Home yeah. Depot and Lowe's are sort of the way that I'm playing home building and Zillow. I have a big position in Zillow. So hopefully people will be checking their estimates. Well, that's the Z in your zombie trade is the Zillow, the O, of course, the OIH. But, Guy Dami, here's my thing. I mean, uh, home buyers generally don't buy a home based on the price of the house. They don't really care about the price. They care about the monthly payment. And I wonder if that's going anywhere but up. Does the price of homes have anywhere to go but down? I don't know. Maybe there's enough buyers out there. It's, it, there's, that's a school of thought. It's interesting. There's also a school of thought that as rates start to go higher, any fence sitters get pushed off and then flood into the market. Again, I don't know what the answer is, but I think you make a really good point. I'll say this, though. It's going to be interesting to see what analysts start to do. I think Goldman Sachs downgraded DHI, which, by the way, Steve Grasso has been all over Dr. Horton, I mean, that stock has been lower left, upper right. Probably the best performing stock out of those home builders. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see as rates start to go higher, if analysts start to take down some numbers. Um, as I said, Goldman downgraded DHI. Still, I think I have a $120 price target on it. I still think you can own that name, but that's what I would be watching over the next couple of weeks. The hottest of the hot home builders of the past year has been Hovnanian. I mean, God, remember that? That's a name that's been volatile for 10 years HOV back in favor, at least for now. Guy, thank you, Karen. Thank you. All right. We are getting started right here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Has big tech found its footing? Not so fast. One top technician doesn't trust this bounce. We're going off the charts next. Plus, bank on the financials? With earnings on deck, we'll break down which name looks safe. Those trades and more when Fast Money returns. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome or welcome back, everybody. And certainly don't call it a comeback because it's not. Well, not yet. But many big tech stocks that got walloped to start the year are trying to claw their way back. So, is the move last couple of days the start of something bigger? Your guest says, probably not. Let's bring in Chris Veroni of Strategic Research. Chris, what say you? Hey, Brian, great to see you. Happy New Year. Well, listen, I think this is a big moment. I mean, we've had this 8 or 9% correction in the queues. Now we've had about a 4 or 5% rally over the last several days. And the question we're posing is, 
this the same as all the other correction from the last 18 months where it was relatively short-lived and the market bounced back and you went on and made new highs? Or is this a little bit different? And right now, I think it's actually a little bit different, both internally and from a macro standpoint as well. So I brought along some charts. We'll first start with the internal complexion of the triple Qs. And this, I think, is the big difference. The prior corrections you've seen over the last year and a half, you always started them with 90 95% of stocks above the 200-day moving average in the triple Qs. We started this one with about 60% of stocks above the 200. And this rally the last couple of days really hasn't changed that at all. So the internal makeup of this market is still weaker than we've seen at any point over the last year and a half. Uh, when you look at where this can rally to, 390 is a big level. I would be a little careful here. I would be more prudent. I'd be taking some off the table as triple Qs rallied into that big level around 390 because the internal complexion of this market is just not as technically sound uh, anymore. And then secondly, I think the macro environment is dictating this shift as well. The second chart we brought along, I think, is a good one. It's showing the rise in real rates versus value tech versus growth tech. And you know what we've seen in the past is that value tech tends to outperform the growthier tech names when real rates uh, when real rates rise. And we're in the camp that real rates will continue to rise here. So I think within tech, if you're going to play here, you want to emphasize the mm -hmm. more value oriented names. And then you know, on top of that, Brian, the dollar has rolled over here. It's our third chart, and you know, weaker dollar has tended to bring along with it a more value interpretation uh, uh, as well. So I think there's two sides to this trade. If we're looking for names we can own that kind of have the value orientation, look at something like HPQ. It's a 10 multiple name. It's not expensive. It pays a 3% yield. It just broke out of like a 20-year base. I think any pullbacks on a stock like that can be bought. Conversely, something like NVIDIA, which is on the other end of the spectrum, growth tech, actually is not acting that great here, has not made a new high in about six or seven weeks. This yeah. rally has been pretty tepid. I think there's some risk there. Chris Barone of Strategus Research making some really interesting points on big tech. Chris, thank you very much. Tim, I don't know about you. I don't want someone to ever say about me. That's Sullivan. He's all right. Not technically sound, but otherwise okay. That's kind of what Chris just said about the QQQ and big tech. <laughs> Can you own big tech in a rising rate environment? Yeah, and we've never said that behind your back. Brian, I think you have a case here where you, you've got, first of all, his argument to me was to own the top five tech companies in the world because largely uh, they are value plays relative to yeah, maybe not to an HPQ, maybe not to an IBM. Um, and, and again, I think there's reasons there. Um, but I think the, the argument that, first of all, if you look at the triple Qs, they're, you know, they've been wrestling with the 100-day moving average for only the fourth or fifth time really since the bottom and, and you know, the bottom of March 2000. And I think you've got a case here where those internals really, we've been talking about them for a long time. You know, below the surface, it really is an ugly scene. And, and the high multiple stocks will continue to underperform. If you're looking for value in mega cap tech, I think we've talked about this, but I, I love Cisco. I, I love the valuation. I love the transition of their business into more of a software recurring revenue story. And and, you know, around uh, security, et cetera. Uh, I think Intel yeah. is a longer play and obviously requires more faith. But again, these are two names that I think you really can feel are value tech. Yeah, and Guy Adami, I mean, we got to break out the way back machine. When is the last time on Fast Money somebody has recommended Hewlett Packard HPQ, but it's got a seven trailing and a nine forward PE, a decent little dividend to thrown in and probably not a high risk company. Your take? 
And it's interesting, you know, people are now flocking to names where value, they can wrap their arms around valuations. I mean, if you listen to what Chris said, the technicals that he's talking about backs up some of the arguments that Steve has made now for the last few months. I mean, that's where people are going. So they might not be the sexiest names in the world, but they're getting the job done. And I'll throw Oracle in that mix as well in terms of a company wow. whose valuation makes sense in this environment, has sold off from that recent high post-earnings making an acquisition and sort of it's I think it checks the boxes that Chris was talking about. We should play some cranberries because it's starting to feel like the 90s all over again with these stock picks. All right. Speaking of the 90s, is Neo the one? No, not Keanu in the great 1999 movie, The Electric Car Company. Guy weighs in on one of his top picks for the year. But first, Coinbase making a big splash in the crypto market. The news that just broke in the last hour. Why it might matter for how you trade those cryptos, those details. Kate Rooney are next. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. All right, welcome, welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Coinbase announcing a big deal in the past hour and making a big move into derivatives. Kate Rooney has the details. Kate, what are they doing? Hey, Brian, that's right. Coinbase is acquiring FairX. It's a Chicago-based derivatives exchange. It's regulated by the CFTC, and the deal helps Coinbase expand its product suite. It doesn't offer derivatives right now, but says it will eventually get into things like options and futures, on both the institutional and the retail side of that business. I spoke to Coinbase executives about this deal. The head of Coinbase Institutional, Brett Tejpal, tells me he saw really strong customer demand for this. He calls it a big commercial opportunity and says Coinbase intends to play a leading role in the derivative side of the crypto market, even though it is still in the nascent stages, as he called it. There's also competitive pressure going on here. Right now, crypto derivatives are really dominated by the big global exchanges. Binance has been by far the leader by volume, followed by FTX. And lately, analysts have told me they are seeing a lot more action from traders betting on the direction of Bitcoin prices versus buying Bitcoin itself in the spot markets. So Bitcoin leverage, or people borrowing to make a trade, hit an all-time high this week. That's according to data from Glassnode. And one way to measure that is the total open contracts. That is up 42% in the last month or so alone. Brian, back to you. Oh, Kate Rooney with the big news on Coinbase. Kate, thank you very much. All right, let's trade this here. Steve Grasso, listen, Coinbase, they got a lot of capital, but their stock's down 34% in two months. It was a $360 stock just in early November. The average analyst targets 387 so the street's bullish. Stock hasn't performed. Now they're making deals. Your take on Coin. So if you look back, just strictly on the technicals right now, it's bouncing off of a, a June uh, level of support. So technically, the stock looked pretty sound. And also, look at what Kate just reported, regulated crypto derivatives. So what, what the tailwind is in this whole segment of, of the market is basically they like it when it's not regulated and the bulls like it when it's regulated. So I think the people that are on the fence that want to be investors in this space, want more regulation. This to me seems like a tailwind. I would be, I would be a buyer of it at these levels, both technically and fundamentally. Buyer at these levels can't be more clear than that. Steve, thank you very much. 
Well, the crypto craze coming into full focus tomorrow night right here on CNBC. Join Crypto Night in America or look at the next moves for some of these digital assets. That is tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC, Crypto Night in America. All right, we're not done yet. Coming up, a decent day for NEO in what has been a lousy year. And now, one firm calling it one of their top picks. The trade on that name next. Later on, big bank earnings, they're on deck. Investors bidding up some of these big names already this year. Which stock looks like a big safe bet right here? We'll name some names coming up. I took the test twice in a drugstore in Palo Alto. I insisted on seeing the machine it went into. So I said, what happens to the nanotainer? How do you ascertain what my blood tests reveal? And she gave me this convoluted answer. And six times I went back to her, and six times it was gobbledygook. And that's when I described in the profile I wrote, her answers to the questions are sometimes comically opaque. And you can catch that full interview on the 200th episode of American Greed, focused on the trial of former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes and the mysterious long-term relationship with her top deputy, Sonny Balwani. That is tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC, American Greed, the Elizabeth Holmes fraud trial. Check it out. Well, calling it a leader in smart electric car tech, Credit Suisse is now calling NEO one of its top auto picks of the year. NEO investors, however, could use a lift. Shares cut in half in a year. Concerned about Chinese regulation, one big reason, but maybe some signs of a turnaround company's guy. This is the in in your dawn trade. Is today's rally, you think, more of a sign of good things to come? I think so. And, you know, we talked about it a few weeks ago. It felt like you had that capitulatory selling around December 20th or thereabouts. We actually talked about it on the show that night. And listen, I understand the naysayers will sell the, say the Chinese concerns have not gone away. That's true. I would push back and say I think that's basically been now priced into the stock, which, to your point, has been more than cut in half over the last year. Credit Suisse has an $83 price target on it. They talk about it on a free cash flow basis. Uh, they say you can't really look at it in terms of earnings right now in this sort of nascent stage, for lack of a better word. But you know, I don't know if it's getting to 83, but I think there's a real good chance that the thing continues to grind higher to the mid-40s, low-50s. And just in terms of market cap, I mean, you see what's going on in the space. I mean, this is a very viable company in a space that everybody's clamoring to be in. Guy Dami on Neo Guy, thank you very much. Well, it is not just Neo. Other U.S. listed Chinese stocks higher today as well. Names like Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, and Pinduoduo, all higher on the move today. Now, Chinese stocks are roughly a third of the biggest emerging markets ETF, the EEM which is off to a red-hot start to the year. It is up more than 5% in just the past week. But longer term, it has not been about China or even the U.S. As you might have seen this morning on the very fine Worldwide Exchange, 5 a.m. Eastern, by the way, here are the top five international ETFs over the past six months. Counting down five to one, five, Egypt, Saudi Arabia at four, Israel at three, the UAE at two, and one-tenth of 1% better, was Indonesia the top-performing international ETF over the last six months? Our resident emerging market expert, Tim Seymour, on this, Tim. I mean, I'm not sure we've talked a lot about Indonesian banks 
on this program, but what do you make of some of the trends, at least? Yeah, but, but you know, the fifth largest populous com- country in the world. And, and a lot of people, look, and you mentioned, uh, you mentioned markets that have very small market caps overall, but you mentioned the Middle East, the demographics are great. Look, part of the story here is reflation. Part of the story is that you actually are seeing asset prices rise. And uh, both EM has a lot of exposure to resources. EM has a lot of exposure, uh, I think, to industrial production. And I think in that environment, again, the rotation we're seeing globally, very helpful to EM. Also, even EM banks, which are cheaper. So the fear of the Fed is something that I think at at some point um, EM is giving you some sense that the Fed's not going to move too quickly. And I think that's part of the confidence here. But again, the EEM has outperformed the SPY by about 6% since December 29th. Uh, nothing to do cartwheels over, but at the top end of a downtrend that goes all the way back to May of last year, when EM finally got to all-time highs and folks like me said, it's about time, we've waited 10 years for this. Very disappointing price action, um, not time to, to, to you know, roll it out for the red carpet, but it looks interesting. Everything has to start somewhere. And Steve Grasso, Tim mentioned population. I mean, most of those companies on that or countries on that list have one thing in common. They have a very large young person population. Oh, and by the way, the U.S. dollar's been on the move. Your take on emerging markets. Yeah, so if, when you look at the S&P, the S&P does have uh, some exposure or a lot of exposure internationally. But there's definitely something to be said, whether you're investing in a country like India. If you look at the uh, Indian ETF, that's where, you, where, that's where people are looking for growth. When you look at the Asian influence or the, uh, the Asian exposure, it's too binary. It's almost like investing in biotech. So you get a headline here and a headline there, but the steady as you go, you pick four or five of these ETFs and you're globally represented. And I think Tim gave you a good example of where you should be. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Good call there. All right, coming up, One Options Trader is making a big bet on this big bank, which is having a rather shocking big year. We're going to reveal that name and the trade right after this short break. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Let's check out some of the names kicking off earnings season for the banks. It's all starting this Friday. You might have heard a few of these companies. J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, BlackRock, First Republic, they are among the first to report within that group. And one options trader is betting more than $4 million that the season could start with some fireworks. Tony Zhang is here to talk about which uh, options trade he is placing on these red-hot names. Tony. Yeah, Brian, the name that we saw a massive roll today was in Wells Fargo. The Wells Fargo traded over three times the average daily volume, and currently the options are implying about a 3.8% going into earnings this week. But one trader that accounted for more than 20% of today's total volume seems to be betting that Wells Fargo could be substantially higher than that going into the February expiration. What's specifically interesting about this trade is that they took profits on an, on an old trade. They sold 17,000 contracts of the February 52 and a half calls, collecting about $7.7 million on that trade and then rolling about $4.6 million of that into a brand new trade. They bought 27,000 contracts 
contracts of the February 57 and a half calls for about $1.54. That's betting that Wells Fargo will be at least four and a half percent higher by the February expiration. But they also bought 9,500 contracts of the February 62 and a half calls for 37 cents. That's betting that Wells Fargo will be 11% higher or more by the February expiration. So laying out a substantial amount of premium that Wells Fargo will beat on earnings perhaps this week. Tony Zhang, Tony, thank you very much. Karen, what's amazing is I ran a screener. Wells Fargo, for all its problems, is the top performing bank, big stock financial of any size this year, up 16%. What do you make of that? And last year, too. I think the problems were so bad that it set up nicely. So along Wells Fargo, I actually think, though, Citibank will be the Wells Fargo of this year. And I think I'm along a bunch of banks, J.P. Morgan, Citibank America, Wells Fargo and Morgan Stanley. We start off earnings, but it happens every time when the banks run up into earnings like they have right now. They trade off when they actually announce. But I'm not going to trade around them. I'm not going to do that. I'm staying long for the long term knowing that they could trade down on earnings. But City's my favorite risk reward for the year. Okay, City the New Wells. Karen, thank you. For more options action, of course, tune into the final show, final show, the full show every Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. I keep screwing up. It might be my final show. Up next, your final trades. All right, for final trades, got a market alert in the world of private equity. According to multiple reports, private equity firm TPG, Pricing its IPO at 29 and a half bucks, 29.50 a share. That is the midpoint of its expected range. The company expected to start trading tomorrow on the NASDAQ. One to watch. All right. Also one to watch your final trades. Tim, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, let's go back to emerging markets. Brazil, EWZ, near the bottom of a range, starting to see a breakout. Obrigado. All right, Karen. Yeah, Steve talked about it, Coinbase. It's a land grab, and I like the way they're positioned, so I'd buy it right here. Steve? Steve? BHP, BHP. I want to get some rare earth uh, mineral exposure in a diversified way. And Guy? My animal instincts suggest that Paul Sankey's MPC will continue to go higher, Brian. Nice. A lot of energy there. We appreciate it. All right, we'll see you all tomorrow night. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.